climate crisis affects us all. But we're not all in the same boat. For us islanders, the problem is more immediate and the solution more urgent. Those who feel it, know it. At a time of crisis, there are people that you want on your side. So, who's on the side of small island states? My name is Andy Lybert and this is Islands on Alert, a podcast where we discuss how climate change has already affected our islands, what's in store for us if the earth continues to warm, and how we can help to reduce the devastating impacts. Today we'll be learning about the Alliance of Small Island States, or AOSIS. This group has been fearlessly negotiating with the biggest, most powerful countries in the world, demanding real action. Small islands, large voices. Now let's rewind to April 1987. One of the world's lowest lying island nations, the Maldives, experiences record tides that flood much of its capital city, Mali. The science has yet to confirm it, but they knew something was wrong. Island communities for generations have become used to the natural rhythms of what could be unforgiving weather patterns, and we could tell that these extremes were becoming more and more intense. Two years later, at the invitation of the Maldives president, Mamoun Abdul Gayam, island nation representatives from around the globe met with scientific advisors and other experts in Mali for an emergency meeting. An alliance was formed. In one voice, the gathered island states declared their intent to work together and warn the world of the dangers posed by climate change, global warming, and sea level rise. The warning became known as the Mali Declaration, and in 1994, it paved the way for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC. The countries that signed onto the street attend the annual conference of the parties, or COP. We will hear a lot more about the development of the UNFCCC and game-changing COPs throughout the years later. In 1990, EOSIS was formally established. A union now comprised of 29 countries Now, for this episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming three guests, each hailing from a a pretty distinct and far-flung geographical region of this world. And they've been negotiating under the unified banner of AOSIS. Now, first from the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, we have International Climate Law and Governance Specialist, Ruana Haynes. Hey, Ruana, how are you doing? Hi, Andy. I'm doing well. And from the federal states of Micronesia, we have the legal advisor, Clement Yao Mulalap. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Clement. Hello, Andy. Hello, hello, everyone. Great to be here. And from the Seychelles, we have the country's former ambassador and permanent representative to the United Nations, Ronnie Jumo. Welcome, Ronnie. Great having you. Hi, Andy. Hi, everyone. Okay, wonderful. 
Now, let's start with having each of you talk about your backgrounds. How did each of you get involved in, first of all, EOSIS? And what are your individual roles? That's Andy. Um, so I've been involved in EOSIS, I think, since about 2010. At the time, we had just come out of the diplomatic disaster that was the Copenhagen conference in 2009. My role evolved over the years into looking at more science-related issues. I was the AOSIS lead negotiator on the review of the long-term temperature goal um, from 2013 to 2015, uh, so leading up to the Paris Agreement. And these days, uh, since then, I've been doing a mixture of compliance work and or and as well as work in relation to transparency wonderful here you are still and here i am still at the scene. <laughs> all right now let's turn to clement i think among the three participants in this discussion today i'm the newbie on the block so to speak i did not directly engage with aosis especially on unf triple c matters until late 2014, early 2015, especially in the lead up to the Paris Agreement. My government, the Federated States of Micronesia, asked me to kind of help the delegations from capital cover the huge number of meetings leading up to the Paris Agreement. A little bit like Rwanda, I, I was asked to look into the question of the legal nature of the Paris Agreement. Uh, but since then, after the, after the Paris Agreement was adopted, I've kind of focused over the last few years on issues involving indigenous peoples and local communities. Uh, at the moment, I'm the SIDS representative on a constituted body connected with the local communities and indigenous peoples platform. Great. I'm now going to turn to Ronnie. Compared to, compared to the others, oh, I've been on a roller coaster ride. I first arrived in New York, took up my post as a permanent representative for Seychelles in 2007, August. That December, I went to my first COP, which was Bali. That was uh, COP 13. So from there, I plunged the depths of Copenhagen in uh, 2009, COP 15, and climbed to the heights of uh, COP 21. And been seen everything that's happened. Oh, what, what an adventure. What a ride it's been. Now let's get into some brief history. Uh, how and when did the organization start? And how has it since evolved into an organization of major influence in the climate change negotiating process. If you're if you're if you're thinking about the formation of the USS, you're thinking back to 1992, well not even 1992, 1990, and the negotiations on the, the UNFCCC itself. So negotiations on the first convention is when a conversation was had, island states sat down and realized we have so much in common. There is so much we need to fight for. In this context, we should form an alliance. So that happened almost at the same time as we arrived at a global consensus that, hey, climate change is a problem and we actually need global cooperation in order to solve it. Now, I've been hearing each of you mention the COP in 2009 in Copenhagen. Now, I'd like to know what was so significant about this conference and and in what ways could it be considered a, a watershed moment? Yes, it was a watershed. It was more like a deluge than a watershed, that one. I think it's because the whole world went to Copenhagen with such high 
expectations. We thought we were going to wrap it up, everybody. It, at the time, it had the highest turnout of heads of state and government at any COP. We really thought we were going to. That was when um, COP21 should have happened. It was in Copenhagen. I remember even my president at the time said to me, Ronnie, what, what do I tell the people back home when I get back there? Because I told them when I left, we're going to sign this agreement. And since then, there was always caution. After that, no president or prime minister ever said again they're going to a COP to solve everything. After that, everybody said, be careful. Be careful what happened in Copenhagen when things didn't work out. I see you nodding your head in agreement, Rihanna. Yeah. Um, no, just because I, I agree 150% with, um, with what Ambassador Juno has just said. I was not at the COP itself for which some, you know, an incident for which I am so grateful to this day. <laughs> that would have been my first cup. But um, my understanding in terms of thinking about AUSIS and what the group stands for and how that was impacted by that cup is that we had sort of the grave disappointment that occurred with the loss of the reference to 1.5. So with the, you know, the breakdown of Copenhagen on the whole, there was no official agreement. What we saw was a reaffirmation of the well below two degree goal with a reference, with a reference to a possible review in relation to 1.5. So at the time, it was messaged as a major loss for islands who went into that, um, who went into that cup, who went into that negotiation, really fired up around 1.5 to stay alive. A lot of work had taken place from 2007, 2008, straight up to 2009 to build an alliance outside of island states with least developed countries, with other vulnerable countries in order, in support of that one and a half degrees Celsius goal. And then we left without it. <laughs> But I will say, I will say that even in that moment of crisis, we had already sowed the seeds for success in Paris in 2015. Wow. Now, th this would be a good place for me to sort of segue into my next question. Um, clearly, these negotiations can, can be brutally fierce. Um, how do these conferences work and how do you approach them? My experience over the last, I guess it's been half a decade or so, there are at least two ways that EOSIS approaches these issues. One, we try to be as clear as possible, vocal as possible, public as possible, clear as possible about what our positions are. Um, but then when it comes to the nitty gritty of the negotiations, I've been very impressed by how our EOSIS lead negotiators uh, have tried as much as possible to strike, uh, you know, uh, additional alliances outside of the EOSIS sphere with a number of other regional and negotiating blocks, blocks within the process, trying to link arms with them to gain a sort of critical mass of support for our different issues so that it will be difficult to ignore those issues when it comes time to actually put pen to paper, have decision language, et cetera. Because as you may be aware, 
you know, decisions are taken in the NFCCC process by consensus. And so one, one party could block consensus, but it becomes harder and harder for a party to block consensus, at least in terms of sort of reputational impact when you have a large number of other parties pushing for a certain thing. If, if, I, if I may add, I'd like yeah. to add to two things um, concerning our negotiators. Going back to what Rihanna was talking is, I think people, you know, I think many people judge AOSIS and Islanders according to the small, in the name small island developing states, as if they're dealing with children. And sometimes they do address us as if they're dealing with children. And they are then surprised on the one side by our resilience and our toughness. Right? And as, as and, and Rihanna alluded to that when she said how we came out of Copenhagen, um, um, we were depressed but not broken. And one of my favorite uh, um, descriptions of resilience is resilience is the smile on the face of an islander compared to what we go through. And secondly, it's the quality of our negotiators. Clement talked about lead negotiators. We have had negotiators in AOSIS who were universally recognized as some of the best negotiators in the world, not among silent states, in the world. They'd walk into a room and people would say, oh, oh, look who's coming. Look who's here. And they were tough. And one of the reasons is because AOSIS could never be challenged on the science. We always followed the science. We were for 1.5 long before others. So when we walk into a room, they would know that I can't challenge their science because it's amongst the best science in the world. All right, got it. 39 countries, that's three distinct regions. Uh, how do you even come to a consensus among yourselves? I mean, are there disagreements? Well, I suppose one thing we should say uh, that maybe we haven't said explicitly, but I, I yes. know that it, it came out somewhat in what Clement was saying, what Ambassador Jumo was saying, is that as AOSIS, we negotiate together on climate change, but that's not the only space we negotiate in. So AOSIS also holds common positions within the broader UN system on sustainable development issues, specifically the sustainable development of small island developing and low-lying coastal states. Uh, AOSIS was part of a driving force in the negotiation of the sustainable development goals, for example. Uh, AOSIS also coordinates closely in the UN system on oceans issues as well. And so this is not just an alliance in support of climate. It reaches into quite a few other areas, particularly mm -hmm. relevant um, mm -hmm. to the development of or the survival of small island developing states. And so with a, a portfolio like that, are there disagreements? Of course there are. Uh, we're dealing with, you know, countries that are scattered across the world writ large, <laughs> but there's more that unites us there than that takes us apart. Um, but I think the important thing to understand about AUSIS is that for the most part, we all want the same things. We may differ sometimes in terms of the strategy to get there but the objectives are common. 
we gain more by staying together, by supporting each other's issues as a group, than by splitting off and only focusing on those two or three key things where we are sure that we are all of the same mind. It's bound to have differences. We have historical differences. One of my, my regrets about AOC is that we have never been able to work like the African group at the UN. African group votes at the block. It's 54 votes. When the African group votes in the UN, you feel it. It's a, when they put the votes on the table, it thumps, the room reverberates. And this is because AOCIS comes from three different oceans, three different from a geopolitical sense of a point of view. It's different powers in different oceans whispering in our ears. Important point, Ronnie. Key point. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so if you're in the Pacific, you, you have Australia, New Zealand, they won't talk to, to, to the Indian Ocean or the Caribbean, right? And in the Caribbean, you're right next to, to the U.S., you have huge, you have huge countries like Brazil there on, on, on your coastline. In Indian Ocean, we have all the Gulf states that are there. And you have Africa also there, and India, and Indonesia, which is G20, and Australia. So there's all these different political messages you get. And, and before a COP, we were talking, you know, their diplomats approach you. But the approach we took is whether you take the approach of there are three oceans or if there's one ocean. Are we separated by three oceans or are we joined by the one ocean? And there's the concept of the one ocean where there is only one joined at the, at the southern ocean. That's the difference between the three. But when we're in the room, someone from the Pacific tells their story, whether you're from the Caribbean or Indian Ocean or South China Sea, you immediately recognize and the fact that we recognize that this is a common story Indeed. prevents huge divisions in that, why should I argue with that person? They're coming from the same place. I guess I'll just speak based on personal experience in the limited time that I've been joining AOSIS on different matters. In the lead up to the Paris Agreement, so during those interminable meetings in Bonn, my first sort of experience joining EOSIS coordination, I did notice differences of views among EOSIS delegations about how far some delegations wanted to push the text that was on the table, how ambitious they wanted to be at that stage of the discussion, especially in the months just prior to Paris, and how other delegations maybe were concerned about pushing too much and upsetting what was starting to develop as a sort of fragile, somewhat fragile consensus among all the major players about what the, the, at least the outline of the final text of the draft of the press agreement would be. And you definitely have some members of, you had, you had some members of AOSIS that wanted to be even more ambitious in some of the language in the text and others who said, uh, this is a very sensitive issue. This is a very sensitive time right now and we need to not overplay our hands, so to speak. And it was just very interesting for me as someone who was new to the process to see how the different delegates from EOSIS tried to navigate those differences of views. I wouldn't call it a division because we were all still committed to speaking as one block, especially at that critical time just leading up to the Paris COP. Uh, But we wanted to make sure that we were able to get as much as we could could out of the text and say as much as we could as the United Bloc. So it's very interesting to see that. And there were a lot of sort of higher ups of the delegations, heads of delegations, and et cetera, 
who had to step in and sort of lend their political weight to some of what their technical delegates were saying. And the one other sort of magical ingredient is that we throw, we throw a lot of parties. Uh, you know, we are island people and we like parties. I am joking, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> I like to ask this though, and anyone can, can, can feel free to answer. Why do the negotiations always seem a, a step or two behind where we actually need to be? Um, the, the negotiating process, it seems to take so long. Why, why is this? I know that, you know, from the outside, this process looks useless, cumbersome, and time-consuming, right? We've had, the, we've had the parent convention, the UNFCCC, since 1992. Here we are in 2021, and emissions continue to rise. Every year we break another record. Climate impacts are ramping up. You know, half the world is burning down, the other half is underwater. So I know that, you know, looking at what has happened, what is happening, and thinking about, well, you know, this process has been in train since 1992. The question for any reasonable person is, what on earth are they doing? You know, is this, is this making any sense? Um, and I think that is a fair critique to make, but I will say that consensus takes time and in the process of building the climate regime we have had to learn some very difficult lessons uh, especially in relation to the drawbacks if we go ahead without having everyone on board so we have the lesson of the Kyoto Protocol, for example, that was focused on a small subset of countries. And you know, many argue, well, what's the point of having this, this global process? Why we need to sit down and get consensus with 194 countries? Why not just deal with this? And I remember during, around the Copenhagen time, this was a big argument. Let's just deal with this in a major economies forum that the US holds. It's like 40, 50 countries, or let's just deal with this as a G20, you know, even better. You know, we are the countries that matter. We are the countries that should be at the table. We are the countries that should be taking decisions, right? And that's put forward as an argument to be able to move the process forward faster. But it's an argument that fails. It's an argument that fails. As we saw with the Kyoto Protocol that was focused on commitments, a small number of countries, um, industrialized nations, it only covered about 16% of global emissions. Uh, we saw that, first of all, almost as soon as the KP came into, came into effect, we started negotiations on a successor agreement because the science was telling us even then that we actually needed more coverage of global emissions in order to be able to succeed at the end of the day. So KP came into effect, let's say the first commitment period was 2008. 2007, we started, and at the COP where Ronnie started, we started with the Bali Action Plan. We started negotiating the successor agreement, which should have been decided in Copenhagen, but ended up not being decided till Paris, right? Because already then it was clear that KP would not get us there. And so we get to Copenhagen, we have uh, an agreement brokered by a representative number of countries. It goes back out to the rest of the world and gets rejected. 
and the entire process almost completely falls apart. Another difficult lesson, taking decisions in contexts where parties do not feel as though their views are being represented only slows us down. And so consensus takes time because what we are dealing with here is almost revolutionary in terms of the scope of the issues that are being addressed. And that should signal to everyone that what we are dealing with here, it's not just an environmental issue, it's a human rights issue. Wow. Now, Ronnie, I'd also like to hear you, your, your take on this as someone who has been a part of so many of these negotiations. I was more involved at the political level. I've never right. been a technical expert. Um, right. My approach was the technical experts come and tell us this is what we need and it's my job to go out there and sell it and make sure you, know, you get people on your side. Copenhagen destroyed the one thing you need in all negotiations. It almost destroyed totally trust. After Copenhagen, we never trusted anybody again. It took us six years to rebuild it to get to the Paris Agreement. It destroyed the trust that each time someone opened their mouths, and especially us, we know what the science is saying, and what you're saying goes against the science is you're looking for hidden agendas. Why are you saying this? Secondly, global opinion on the streets in the global north changed, only changed, as climate change effects in the global north started to get worse. And now look at what we're seeing today in what's happening in, 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 in the US, in Canada. It's hit not just Europe, Canada, and the US. It's now, it's now, it's hit Russia with, with wildfires. It's hitting China now, all the major emitters, right? And unfortunately, it's been at our expense. You get no satisfaction by telling them, I told you so. And it took that long before young people in the North who are future voters started responding and saying, what's going on here? It took that long for climate change to get that bad. And our worry now is they're going to say, even have an extra excuse not to give us the money we need by saying now we need to fix our, our infrastructure and everything. The, the trust went. And without trust, you have to rebuild the trust. What I would do is when I would meet political counterparts in, in the cops, in the back rooms, and I'm trying to tell them, I'm not against you. Because we are collaborating on other things. So it's not an us versus them. And that's what the political uh, negotiators were doing, trying to reach out and talk and, 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 and find common ground on other issues to say, this is the issue we're discussing, but we don't have to sit on opposite sides of the fence. Now, if, if Copenhagen was a law, what, what was the Paris Agreement? We're now five and a half years removed from it. What has it achieved? Cancun made a big difference, the next one. It went a, lot, a long way to healing, not reinstating trust, but healing a bit the wound. Cancun, it was a huge sigh of relief. Because we weren't, all went into Cancun scared after Copenhagen. They changed the way they approached it. And they had more high-level consultations before a COP. 
And I think one of the big successes of Paris was the way the French diplomacy reached out across the world, saying, can you send a message, head of state, minister of environment, minister of foreign affairs, whatever it is, can you send a message down to the technical ranks saying, come on, we have to reach an agreement here. They need the political direction. Because the, the experts can take it only so far before they say, I have to check with capital. I'd like for you now to take me behind the curtains. Allow our audience to go into the negotiating room itself. What's that like? Mm, it depends on the room. Who you see and what you see changes depending on the room and the issue. Yeah. I mean, this issue is so, it's multi-layered and it's very complex. And so, whereas you may be in one room where, and this happens, you may be in one room where AOSIS countries, um, Egypt and Saudi Arabia are all seeing the same thing, likely a room in finance, and the enemies on the other side might be, you know, the US's, the Switzerland's, the France, <laughs> right? You get into another room and that constellation changes. What doesn't change though, as an EUSIS negotiator, is the fact that in my view, no matter what room we're in, we have the most to lose and the least to give. So as Ronnie described, we're talking essentially about changing the global economic order in order to ensure the survival of future generations. And so the countries with the most influence there, the countries who already have, you know, a major role to play economically at the global level, sits don't fall into that category. And so when it comes to looking at winners and losers, looking at the issue of, um, you know, trade-offs. What do we have to trade off? We, we cannot say, well, we will um, change our energy systems to, to renewable energy uh, because that is going to make a major impact on addressing the emissions gap globally. And in return, we expect to get X, Y, and Z because there's nothing we can do that's going to have that major impact. We are not India, we are not China, we are not Indonesia. And so as a SIDS negotiator in a room, you find yourself having to do that work. And that's probably why we've gotten so good at that work that Clement identified that Ronnie alluded to of making alliances. We have to map alliances across different issues, make strategic alliances to deliver on different issues in different rooms to ensure that our issues are taken up and taken on board. In addition to building the alliances, we also usually have to put ourselves in a position to take a lot of criticism, endure a lot of economic sometimes and political pressure 
you have to stake out an issue and take it to the very absolute limit in order to have a chance of being taken seriously. And that has happened, I think, twice. I would say AUSIS is staking out what is seen as an unpopular position that nobody will ever agree to as an AUSIS negotiator. People say things to you occasionally like, over my dead body, will this ever be in the agreement? And then it makes it into the agreement. And guess what? They're still alive. So, so COP26 in Glasgow is now fast approaching. Um, do you plan on using these same negotiating techniques in, in the UK? I very much endorse what Rwana has said about the, the ways that EOSIS tries to get its issues across the line, including taking very unpopular maximalist positions. And I've also heard messaging in connection with this upcoming COP about it, how it's going to be sort of a make or break moment, at least in the Paris Agreement implementation, how if we don't secure certain things, or at least certain commitments in this upcoming COP, then that might be the death knell for the UNFCCC process, or at least in connection with the Paris Agreement. Do we see this as a make or break moment for, for the Paris Agreement at least? And if we end up getting an unfavorable sort of negative outcome, how do we as EOSIS move on from that? I mean, we do have, like we've talked about, a history of resilience coming back from Copenhagen, among other things. I have a lot of concerns about how things uh, play out, but I also uh, am very pretty, op- pretty clear-minded about uh, how realistic some expectations are. And I'm just wondering how EOSIS will message things going beyond COP26. And Rwanda is one of our lead negotiators, so I'd be very interested to hear what Rwanda has to say on this. Thanks, Clement, um, for flinging me under the bus. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we can't forget the elephant in the room, COVID. That's a, a major complicating factor that uh, can have a serious impact on any expectations we frame for COP26 and, you know, uneven whether the COP actually is able to go ahead. The UK seems convinced that it will, but COVID. Uh, so, so with that pin stuck, I would say from my assessment, and I think Ronnie highlighted this as well, successful COPs require exceptional diplomacy. Uh, on behalf of the COP president. The UK is looking to reestablish itself. They are out of the EU and Mm. they are looking for a particular type of profile on the world stage. They are placing the pressure on themselves to rise to the occasion to be able to deliver on the type of diplomacy that it takes to have a successful COP. And this works in our favor because we've had in the past a series of COP presidencies that have been either less able or less motivated to do the same. So even looking at who the president is, where we are in terms of climate action, how could we not have high expectations of COP26? How could it not be a make or break cup. You know, the collective PTSD that we have all suffered from Copenhagen is that 
we do not like to put too many expectations on a cup. There is still that fear. There is still that fear. But I will say, from a scientific perspective, this cup has the unenviable role of establishing that the Paris Agreement ambition mechanism works. We came out of COP21 understanding for the first time in the history of the process that we are all in this together, but not really being agreed on the fact that we all have to deliver this together and what that means. So Clement, to answer your question, it's more about what is the plan and less about managing the fallout. Well, in spite of it all, I do sense that despite the struggle, there is, there is still optimism. Um, am I correct? Saints <laughs> cannot afford but uh, to be the most optimistic in the room yes. because everybody watches our faces. We, we, are, we are the very de definition of resilience. As an islander, mm -hmm. I have a genetic predisposition to be as optimistic as possible, including whenever I go out fishing. And despite previous failures, I always think, no, this time, this time I'll catch a big one. <laughs> and once in a while, once in a while, I do live up to my expectations. Thank you all so much for your time and uh, for your dedication and your hard work. Uh, I wish you all the very best. Continue on. Thank, thank you. you. Nice seeing you all. Yes, it was great to Take see care. you all. It was great to see you guys. Okay, thanks, thank guys. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Aosis. Today's inside view of the negotiations reveal how tough and grueling they are, but also how rewarding they can be. And now, I for one am so grateful for the fearless and the heroic efforts of the Alliance of Small Island States, who continue the unrelenting fight to protect us and our homes. So today we learned about political action, but there are other methods of tackling climate change. Next week, we will gain insight as to how we can shift our economies away from dirty, carbon-emitting fossil fuels and towards green, renewable energy. See you then. I'm your host for Islands on Alert, Andy Lieberg. Islands on Alert is produced by Leila Henry and Louis Price, under the Alliance of Small Island States media team. Special thanks to Tashwa James and Bianca Bedu for additional scripting. Join us next time. <laughs>